Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn from Cornell University physicists about how cell-sized robots actually communicate with each other and move around. You'll also learn about the uncanny valley and how scientists figured out what part of your brain gets creeped out by human-like robots. The machines really are taking over. This podcast, at least. Let's satisfy our robot overlords. Or at least let's satisfy some curiosity. How do you actually communicate with a cell-sized robot? And how does something that small actually move around? This week, you'll get to know how microscale machinery works with some help from Cornell University physicists Paul McEwen and Itai Cohen. It's the third edition of our Microscale Mondays miniseries, and we'll start by asking Paul the obvious question. Can't you just use Bluetooth or Wi-Fi? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question, is how do we communicate with them? And in fact, you can't really put Wi-Fi on them because they're too small. Uh, they don't work well with Wi-Fi. So we're doing basically Li-Fi. We use light as the thing we shoot at them to, to both power and communicate with them. So think of a, think of a cat chasing a laser beam. That might be the right uh, mental image to have. Uh, Got it. And then they have a little LED on board so that they can, at least in some of the devices, can blink back at you to communicate what's going on with them. So we also need to invent uh, basically a set of technologies. You know, the idea would be you would hold your cell phone up, your smartphone up over the little tiny microbot, send it signals, and it would blink back at you to tell you what was going on. You can make LEDs that small? Absolutely. We do it every day. Wow. Right. So at the moment, it's not doing any sophisticated computations or anything like that. Um, but we've now made devices that would allow the robot to sense its environment, sense the chemical gradients in its environment, sense the thermal environment that it's in. And if you can then hook those up or connect them to a timing circuit that affects how the legs actuate or move, then you could drive the robot to chase you know, a particular thermal gradient or a chemical cue and identify a foreign invader in the body or something like that. Okay, so it turns out you can help a robot do a lot of things just by using lights. They can even blink back at you. Pretty cool, right? Well, it's only cool if the robots can actually move around. Here's Itai Cohen with more on how that works. What we've done right now is we've created a robot that has front and back legs. And the way that the robot folds up, the front legs sort of lift the body and allow the back legs to get a grip so that when we rotate the back legs backward, they give a power stroke that moves the, the whole robot forward. So that's the, that's the current device that we have, and it sort of fluctuates. You, you oscillate between the front and back legs folding in order to get the robot to essentially crawl off the Petri dish. So it, it literally goes as far as our microscopic stage will go. Am I imagining it correctly like, like a bounding cheetah in slow motion, kind of? Yeah, very slow motion, <laughs> because the other thing that these robots uh, are... are well, I actually, you know, for, for microorganisms, they're really fast. fast right. uh, maybe not as fast as a cheetah, but they're really fast compared to other organisms. So these robots are immersed in a fluid, and that actually ends up being what uh, determines their speed. So the, the viscosity of moving your leg through uh, a fluid, that's the, that's the limiting uh, rate for these. So okay. if, you, if you've ever seen a, a, a movie of a water bear, you know, these little water bear creatures yeah. uh, walking along, uh, th it's sort of like that. That's what you should be thinking about. Right. I'll, I'll mention one thing we did. The first time we put one of these little robots down and, and tried to get it to walk, uh, it just it just skidded. It, didn't, it couldn't go anywhere because uh, we had 
not very cleverly just put it on a glass slide in, in water because that's what you do in a microscope. And so it just couldn't get traction on the glass. It was frictionless. So it just slid like it was on ice. And uh, by the way, water bears will do the same thing. They can't, they can't walk on a glass slide either. So then we had to build a glass slide with little knobs on it, little, little uh, bumps. bumps that gave the tiny robot traction. And once we gave it bumps, it could just zip right along. Who knew cell-sized robots and water bears would have so much in common? Anyway, now that you know how they're made, how they move, and how they communicate, we'll wrap up next week by talking about the future of origami robots and the impact they could have on our world. Again, that was Itai Cohen, professor of physics at Cornell University, and Paul McEwen, director of the Kavli Institute at Cornell for Nanoscale Science. And you can learn more about them and their work in today's show notes. Scientists have pinpointed the part of your brain that's creeped out by human-looking robots. They're typically a lot bigger than cell-sized. And this could have implications for how we design robots in the future. So have you ever seen a too-real CGI character or watched a video of a human-like robot and felt a shiver down your spine? Scientists call that hyper-realistic creep factor the uncanny valley. And earlier this month, neuroscientists announced they've figured out what's going on in the brain when we fall into this valley. And we call it a valley in the first place because of the shape of lines on a graph that was used to first explain the phenomenon. In 1970, a Japanese roboticist named Masahiro Mori created a graph that plots things according to their level of human resemblance, or likeness, and Shinwakan, which roughly translates to affinity or comfort level. The correlation between something's likeness and a human's affinity for it is mostly positive. An industrial robot in a factory would rank low in both likeness and affinity, while a lifelike android would rank higher in likeness and affinity. But there's a dip in the graph for humanoids that give us the creeps, and that dip is the uncanny valley. That's where you'll find, say, prosthetic hands and corpses, because they appear human at first glance, but turn out to be artificial, or worse, dead, when you take a closer look. Mori also observed that movement intensifies our feelings towards humanoids, both good and bad. So you would probably feel closer to a well-animated cartoon character compared to a human-like sketch, and you'd probably be more creeped out by a zombie than a corpse. For a new study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, a team of neuroscientists and psychologists from the UK and Germany figured out the neural mechanisms involved in how people evaluate human-like figures. They used fMRI machines to measure changes in blood flow to different parts of the brain while human participants looked at humans, humanoids, and robots. And they found that when you see an agent, like the ones in the study, your prefrontal cortex has a two-part response. So first, your dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, right along the midline of your frontal lobe, emits a human detection signal that's strongest for, well, humans. Then the neighboring ventromedial prefrontal cortex combines this signal with an evaluation of how likable an agent is. This research pretty much confirmed that the uncanny valley is a real thing because of the way your brain processes information. But even more interesting is that it turned out that not all participants felt the same level of revulsion. The authors say this study is the first to demonstrate individual differences in sensitivity to the uncanny valley effect. And that suggests that some people get creeped out by almost humans more than others. Meaning the uncanny valley is not one size fits all, and there's no robot that pleases or scares everybody. 
it's even possible that you might get creeped out by a human-like robot, but then learn to feel more at ease as you spend more time with it. Over time, the Uncanny Valley might not be about what a robot looks like, but what it can do. You can't judge a book by its cover, and you can't judge a robot by its creepy rubber skin. I witnessed this firsthand. I'm watching Star Trek The Next Generation with my wife. She didn't grow up with it as a kid. For me, Lieutenant Commander Data was one of my favorite characters. He's an android played by Brent Spiner, and he has white facial makeup and weird contacts that make his eyes look creepy. She thought that he was kind of creepy looking. Now we're a season and a half into the show, she's seen him really, really funny and endearing, and now she really likes him. Same exact thing. I mean, a lot of the characters on Star Trek, all the newer Star Treks and stuff, the facial makeup makes them look really freaky, but then you get used to them and you get to know them and it's fine. Yeah, she stopped complaining about Klingons too, which 13-year-old me is high-fiving me so hard for this. (laughs) Before we recap what we learned today, we wanted to quickly remind you to please nominate Curiosity Daily to be a finalist in the 2019 Podcast Awards. Find a link in today's show notes or visit podcastawards.com to register. Then find Curiosity Daily in the drop-down menus for the categories of People's Choice, Education, and Science and Medicine. And now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that cell-sized robots can communicate using LED lights and move around by bounding like a super-slowed cheetah. And that not all uncanny valleys are created equal. Like One man's nightmare is another man's virtual assistant. Do virtual assistants dream of electric meetings? Whoa. (laughs) Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious.